Our passage this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, there are plenty of things we like to talk about, aren't there? We like to express our points of view. We all have opinions, so opinions about this past week's headlines, the protests, the national anthem debates. But one thing that inevitably quiets us down is when the topic of death comes up. There's no place quite as silent as a funeral is there. Because while we may feel opinionated and strong as we face the disapproval of others or the scorn of an opposing political viewpoint, none of us naturally feel prepared to face death. Death is the end point of our power. It's the period on our life. Even for religious types who have an optimistic view of some sort of afterlife, the grief and pain of death is inevitable. And so we say things like, everything is going to be okay. Or we write cards that say, she's not really gone. She's just with us in a different way. But if we're honest with ourselves, and that's something we always should seek to be as a church, death is a terrible thing. It's an enemy. And often we face it with fear and with dread. Well, we come this morning to the last part of chapter 4, which Daniel has just read for us in our study through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So remember, our author is Paul, the early Christian missionary, and he's writing to a new church that he just planted in the city of Thessalonica in what is now modern-day Greece. And he arrives this morning at the topic of death. So it seems like he's received word back from Thessalonica, perhaps through Timothy, who he sent to them, that death is alarming this new church. Perhaps they had lost one of their dear friends, maybe even to the new persecution they were facing. So how were they to process this in their new faith? Well, as we look at these six verses this morning, uh, let's see three things. First, death with no hope. Second, the death of Christ. And third, life forevermore. So first, let's see death with no hope. So remember, at the end of chapter 2, which we looked at a month or so ago, Paul has said he wants to get back to Thessalonica. Why? Well, he wants to see the Christians there face-to-face so he can supply what's lacking in their faith. So you may remember he had to get out quickly because of persecution. So he hadn't finished up all the teaching he wanted to coach them up in. And so here he continues to just send them information until he can see them face-to-face. And in verse 13... He wants to supply what's lacking in their faith, especially with those who are asleep. So sleep was a popular euphemism for death in the ancient world. Those who died appeared to be sleeping. 
And so Paul here is talking about those who have died in their church. And much like our culture today, first century Thessalonica had a pretty bleak view of death. So while some philosophers believed in some sort of afterlife, their view of that afterlife was usually pretty depressing. So like deceased souls living as shadows in what one guy calls a flimsy existence. Nothing much to look forward to. Even the ancient Greek poet Theocritus in, I believe, the second century BC once noted, hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. And while we may kind of scoff at that pessimistic outlook, I wonder just how far off we are from thinking that way in our culture, even in our church today. I mean, mean, just flip on the TV or pick up a newspaper if you still do that, and you'll find quickly what this world thinks of as the good life. We're constantly being urged to live for ourselves, to fill ourselves up with pleasure, to leave behind things and people that could cause us pain, to get what we know we deserve. And, And while we don't mention death a whole lot, I think death is a powerful motivation in that, in trying to just live it up while we can. Because life is short. Death is certain. And life after death seems vague, if not impossible. And so a full life here on earth must be one in which we pack as much of what we want into it as we can. And is that way of thinking much different from Theocritus? Hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. You can only truly live if you live it up now. Christians, even we can buy into that lie. Full pleasure can only be had if we just get it now. Delaying any sort of joy will only mean seeing it slip through our fingers later on. Nothing's really changed in 2,000 years. When we embrace pleasures of this world as end-all, be-all, we live, even brothers and sisters, Christians here this morning, we live like we're facing death with no hope. And so Paul's words here, just like his sexual ethic we looked at last week, must have sounded just bizarre to these ancient Thessalonians. Because why does he want to educate them in this matter about death? Look there at the end of verse 13. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So first notice, Paul isn't against grief. He's no stoic when it comes to death. He feels it deeply. He's not advocating any sort of detachment. He understands grief is entirely appropriate because death is incredibly horrible. So he doesn't tell the Thessalonians to just suck it up and dry their eyes. But he does urge them not to grieve in a way that contains no hope. So what could that mean? How are the Thessalonians to view death any differently from those around them? How could Paul say such a thing? Was he just being positive, just kind of looking for the silver lining? Our second point we see in verse 14, the death of Christ. See, Paul's hope in the face of death was not rooted in anything inside himself. It wasn't even rooted in an emotion or a feeling or a gut instinct. It was rooted in fact. It was rooted in a truth of history. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Church, the the doctrine of the gospel, 
what we believe, is always relevant to our lives because the fear of death is always relevant to our lives. As long as death scares us, we need the gospel to be real to us. As long as cancer alarms us, we need this gospel. So, church, do you see again this morning the hope we have in Christ? A gospel means good news, and that good news is crystallized right there in five words. Jesus died and rose again. When we were lost in our sin, rebels against God, under his judgment of spiritual death forever, it was like we received a summons from the district court of heaven to a final judgment, and we knew the evidence would just be indisputable. We would be found guilty. We had scorned our God. We had rejected his plan for our lives. We had knocked him off the throne of our hearts. We were certainly going to face his righteous wrath. Death would be inevitable forever. But then God sent his one and only son. In the immense mercy of God, he sent Jesus to answer that court summons in our place. Jesus, as it were, went to the great court of God for us, pled guilty to the judge for our sin, and took on himself all the punishment we deserved. Jesus died. That's only half of the good news, isn't it? Because if Jesus had stayed dead, death would have had the final victory. If Jesus had stayed dead, the final nail would have been hammered into the coffin of any hope we could ever hope of having. But Jesus did not stay dead, like Dan was reading earlier from 1 Corinthians. On the contrary, on the third day, he rose again. He defeated our death. He defeated our sin. He defeated our greatest enemy. And so Paul here reminds the Thessalonians of that gospel hope. And he says, you must not grieve like those who have no hope. Why? Because Jesus has not only saved you by dying, but he's trailblazed a path of victory for you over death. As you follow him, as Paul is fond of saying, as you're united to him, joined to him by faith, you will most certainly have victory over your death, just as certain as his victory was over his death. In fact, you already have it. And you will have it fully when he comes back. So Paul knows they must grieve, but he doesn't want their grief to override their belief. And church, this is why we spend so much time reminding each other what we believe on Sunday mornings. We don't just think about how we should live or morality or do's and don'ts. We don't just think doctrine is for heady Christian intellectual types. No, we spend time reading long passages, rehearsing the truth about what Christ has done for us because that has everything to do with our hope in the face of death. Now, if you're here this morning, you haven't trusted in Christ and what he did to take that death penalty for you, then you still face death with no hope, friend. If you approach that judge in that courtroom of God based on how your good deeds might outweigh your bad deeds, you're going to be condemned. It won't be good enough for a perfect God. But if you trust in Christ and what he has done to take your punishment and give you his perfection, you're going to be saved. So trust in him friend. Trust in him today. 
And family, just remember, Jesus is alive. I mean, no other religion under heaven can boast of a Savior who died but now is alive. One hip-hop artist, yes, the hip-hop artist, puts it this way. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. But Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. But Jesus is alive. Give praise to King Jesus, the blessed son, victorious, glorious, resurrected one. To him belongs the power, glory, and honor. Ascended where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Can this news grow old for us, church? Your Jesus died for you. And now he lives in heaven and he's given his spirit to dwell in you. This news needed to change everything for the Thessalonians and it must continue to change everything for us. Their view of death and their view of hope were to be transformed by this risen, alive Savior, setting them apart from the hopelessness of the world around them. So Paul continues to teach them. Look there in verse 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord. This isn't Paul's thoughts. These are from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, who have died. So Paul begins to teach the Thessalonians what to expect when this risen, living King Jesus returns. The dead who have died in Christ, they're not going to miss out on anything. Look in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul, Paul's not sure when Jesus is coming back. We'll see that next week. It's going to be like a thief in the night. But he knows that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise in response to his voice. Now, just like anything that has to do with anything about anything that Jesus is coming back, there is debate about how this will actually happen. So it seems like Jesus is going to be bringing back the souls of those who have died and who are living in heaven with him. And then their dead bodies, which we assume are still in the ground, are going to be risen, glorified bodies to meet him in the air. Yet regardless of how these particulars will go down, Paul's point here is clear. Jesus will resurrect those who have died in him and they will be glorified in his presence forever. Remember how Jesus, we looked at this in the summer, how Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus and said those simple words, Lazarus, come out. Well, at the last day, a word will thunder from heaven so that every corner of the earth will hear and the dead in Christ will rise at that voice of their king. Death has no say when it is God who speaks. You know what? The, the picture here of the descending of the Lord it probably would have rang a bell with the ears of the Thessalonians because it seems likely Paul is drawing on a practice they would have known. So this practice was, was kind of a city expecting an emperor or a dignitary to draw near, to visit and instead of just waiting for, them, for the king to arrive at their doors, they would send a delegation to greet them, like a greeting party, to accompany that emperor, that dignitary, into the city. So here Paul is teaching the Thessalonians and us that the greeting party for King Jesus when he comes will be his church. Us. 
transformed into glorious new heavenly bodies, meeting our king as he appears in glorious might. Church, it's been 2,000 years, but we still live in hope of that return. And it could be today. Our king Jesus is coming back. And the whole world's going to know it. Greg Beale, a scholar of this text, says, When Christ appears, he will not descend from the sky over Boston or London or New York City or Hong Kong or any sort of localized area. When he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest to all eyes throughout the earth. Jesus' return will be like this cosmic megaphone, like this PA system reverberating throughout the earth. This is the Lord. Glory be to him. Kneel before him. So church, if this is our God, that's why we don't need to fear death. That's why we don't need to grieve without hope. Death is not the ultimate period at the end of our lives. We have no power over it, that is sure. But praise Jesus, he does. We have confidence in him. And that's our last point. He will raise us up to life evermore. Look there in verse 17. Paul writes, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will always be with the Lord. Friends, this is no mystical hope. This is no superstitious superstitious wish. It's hard to say. This is the promise of God. Those who are still alive in Christ when he returns will be caught up with him and all those who have gone before, who have died trusting in him. And after that, we will always be together. The bride of Christ living in his presence, bought by his blood. Now, theologians have commonly referred to this idea of being caught up as the rapture. You've probably heard that word before. Lots has been written about the rapture, particularly in the last 65 years or so. But this is really the only place in the scriptures that we see it clearly taught. And so if you've seen movies or read books that make it sound like it's going to be some sort of secret disappearing that's going to leave everyone confused, wondering where all these planes have gone and cars have wrecked and people have left. I don't think we can be confident of that based on this passage, friends. Because in fact, it seems like the whole world is going to have some knowledge of what's occurring. Jesus is going to descend, how? Verse 16, with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And church, notice how Paul sees our final resurrection and salvation not merely as an individual thing. Do you see that? It's a church thing, isn't it? Paul says that we will be caught up together. We will always be with the Lord. The king will always be with us. These are plural pronouns. Everything good about Jesus that we as a church have just merely sampled and will continue to sample here at the Lord's table on earth will just be laid out in lavish, abundant proportions for us at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I mean, church, just listen. All our salvation will be fulfilled. All our joy will be complete 
All our tears will be wiped away. All our death will be finally put to death. All our pain and trials will be over. All our temptations will have no power. They will be done. The kingdom of Christ won't be a solo paradise where all our private dreams and fantasies come true. It's going to be so much better. It's going to be a wedding party. It's going to be a triumphant congregational celebration as Jesus brings us to himself. And so in light of this corporate nature of our hope, Paul's final exhortation in verse 18 makes all the sense in the world. Therefore, because all these things are true, encourage one another with these words. Thessalonians, I know you're being persecuted now. I know you're suffering now. I know you've been grieved by those who have gone, but you can be comforted. Jesus will return to save even those who've died. That truth for the Thessalonians and for us should gut any fear of death of its power. That truth should rid us of any hopelessness or fear of future suffering. We know, church, our bodies are frail. If you haven't been reminded of that this past week, talk to me and I'll remind you. But we know that Jesus became frail for us and died for us, and he'll return in powerful glory, the likes of which we can't fathom with our unglorified minds. And he'll come for us, resurrecting our bodies, glorifying our bodies, bringing us to himself. So in the meantime, family, if death is our lot, that's only going to be the beginning. The usher to guide us into eternal joy. So church, how can we encourage one another in this truth this morning? Well, first, if you have lost one, someone, if you know of someone in Christ who has died, they're going to be raised again. Take comfort. But for us as a whole, one of my prayers for myself and for this church now is that something like this, this truth, would make us bold in our faith that we would take risks for Jesus. I heard a, a missionary last week reminiscing about people he's known and worked with who have been killed for taking the gospel to hostile places. But he didn't say it with grief because they died knowing it wasn't the end for them. They died in confidence, folks. Shouldn't we be brave like that, family? Shouldn't we be the most ferociously courageous people on the planet? Not in our own strength. Don't take this as a guilt trip. Not in our own strength, but as we fix our gaze on the return of our king. If you're feeling scared and fearful this morning, spend time this week meditating on the resurrection and return of King Jesus. Reread 1 Corinthians that we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, and then meditate on this. Jesus died your death, and he's coming back to give you life forevermore. Stop looking at yourself. You're no hero. Look to your hero in heaven. Be bold because you belong to him. Be bold because the spirit that raised him from the dead is inside of you. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if he called even some of us in this room to give our lives for him. That's not just for the super Christians. That's for us, folks. 
to go where his gospel is yet to be heard, to risk everything because we know that in Christ we will gain more than everything. I wonder, could that be you? Would you go? In a letter from the second century that was discovered hundreds of years later, there was this woman named Irene. Yes, women were named Irene in the second century, I've discovered. And she wrote this letter to her friends who had just lost their son, and she had lost a loved one recently too. And so it's kind of a, a sympathy card. And she expresses grief in the letter, but at the end, she finishes it like this. Nevertheless, against such things one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. Church, there's no comfort in that. There's no comfort when we realize we can do nothing in the face of death. Irene must have known that. She, like us, could do nothing in response to her greatest enemy, and neither, neither can we. But Jesus has done everything for us. He is our hope. Death cannot stand before our king. If only Irene had known that. Nabil Qureshi was born in 1983 to Muslim parents in California. And in college, he went through a painful yet joyful process of abandoning his Muslim faith, grieving his parents' hearts, and recognizing Jesus as the only Savior of the world. He went on to become a, a world-renowned defender and preacher of the gospel. And a year ago, in August 2016, the same time we started this church family, Nabil, at the age of 33, was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. He wrote this on his Facebook page as he announced his diagnosis. In the past few days, my spirits have soared and sank as I pursue the Lord's will and consider what the future might look like. But never once have I doubted this, that Jesus is Lord. His blood has paid my ransom, and by his wounds I am healed. Two months later, in October of 2016, radiation had done nothing. Cancer had spread to Nabil's chest, but his spirit had grown stronger. You can look up his video blogs on YouTube and see how he stared death in the face. And in the second to last video he made just a few weeks ago, he prayed, Lord, we know you are able. Please heal. Please come through. But if it shouldn't be your will, your sovereign will at the end of the day, then I trust you and I love you anyway. Nabil died on September 16th, just a few weeks ago at the age of 34. In church, when Jesus comes back, Nabil is going to, die, Nabil is going to rise first, right? That's the heart of courage and peace in the face of death that only the cross of Christ can give. And even now, Nabil understands more clearly than we the wonderful mystery of the gospel that we're going to sing about now. He has now begun to taste what we only have as a foretaste. That our hope in Christ is unwavering. That as Christ was raised in power, so we will be when he comes. And so in the meantime, let's encourage one another with these words. And let's be bold in the strength of our king. This king who has beaten death for us. Let's pray. God, death scares us. 
We have no power over it. But this morning we are chastened in our fear because we're reminded of your victory, your victory over death that will be perfectly accomplished when you return, maybe even today. So Lord, use us. Give us your strength. We, we want to lay down our lives for you. Make us bold in this truth. And Jesus, please come back soon to catch us up into glory. Amen. <coughs>